This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everyone. I got a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. So for a limited time only, we are offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts. That includes this podcast. You also get unlimited reading on Slate.com and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn and Amicus and The Political Gap Fest. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events, elections, social issues, and historic court decisions. Our culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, and explained the latest TikTok trends. If we've become part of your listening routine, we're asking that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash whatnextplus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we are giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash whatnextplus. Today's show is about the origin of these buzzwords. When did you first hear the words qualified immunity? Oh my gosh. I first heard the words qualified immunity way back and during the Ferguson protests. Washington Post reporter Kimberly Kindy is going to be our guide here. But it really, it was when you would call a legal scholar or a police use of force expert, and it was, you know, these academics that were saying, we really have to do something about qualified immunity. That is one of the things that is really standing in the way of uh, truly reforming police. Qualified immunity, it isn't a law. It's an understanding, an interpretation of who's right and who's wrong. And you have probably heard a lot about it over the last few years. Qualified immunity says that government workers doing their jobs, most of the time, they cannot be held financially accountable when something goes wrong. The result is that when regular people try to sue cops who hurt them, these two little words become a justification for their claims going unanswered. One of the most amazing things that happened after the death of George Floyd was that people were showing up at protests with signs that said end qualified immunity. And I remember just shaking my head thinking, wow, how did that go mainstream? How did people start to understand this obscure legal doctrine that five years ago, I could only have a conversation with maybe an academic about it? Kimberly thinks, the way people talk about qualified immunity, it started to change when a few extreme cases attracted national attention. There are tons of them that have captured the attention of the public. Uh, one uh, involves a 10-year-old boy who was ordered by a police officer to get down on the ground. He did, and the family dog came out, was not a threat in any way. An officer shot at the dog anyway, 
and ended up missing and shooting the 10-year-old boy in the back of the knee. So what does that mean for the family? Like, do they have any redress? No. The civil lawsuit that they filed against that officer was dropped because the court granted qualified immunity to that officer, and therefore the case could not proceed. Did they get any financial compensation? None? No. Public officials have gotten qualified immunity after stealing from people and sexually assaulting them. There's even a case where one officer warned others that a mentally ill man should not be tased because he'd doused himself with gasoline and was sure to catch fire. The cops fired their tasers anyway. The man died, and the officers were granted qualified immunity. But while these cases made ending qualified immunity into a popular slogan, the idea hasn't really gone anywhere legislatively. Kimberly says when Congress tried to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, it was when politicians started talking about ending qualified immunity that things really began to break down. Did that surprise you? Well, it didn't surprise me because the same thing happened in state houses across the nation. I talked to a number of lawmakers who were trying to get bills passed. And, you know, in the hallways, when they were talking to their colleagues about supporting this, they said that many of them said, in in principle, I agree that something needs to be done. But the police organizations are very, very powerful. And the worry that they would support your opponent in the next election is very real for them. Today on the show, why is qualified immunity so hard to end? And what happens when you end it anyway? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's talk about how this qualified immunity doctrine started in the first place. Because my understanding is that it's a constitutional protection, but it's not in the Constitution. It's, it was created by the Supreme Court. Can you just explain how we started talking about police use of force and thinking about how we dealt with it at the civil level? So Congress, back in the 1800s, believed that citizens should be able to sue individual government workers who have violated somebody's constitutional rights. And so in the 1800s, they passed a law that was then called the Ku Klux Klan Act. It was uh, an informal reference to it. And the reason why it was called that was because the motivation for passing the law was that there were a number of government workers who were aiding and abetting the Ku Klux Klan and the terrorist acts that they were committing against Black people. And so Congress decided that there there should be some legal path for people to bring civil lawsuits against government workers who are violating people's constitutional rights. So that was on the books for a very long time. And then in the 1960s, a case was brought 
and it was um, stemmed from a free Freedom Riders case. And the court said that officers in in that case deserved some type of immunity when they were acting and doing things in the course of their job. And then with subsequent court rulings, the Supreme Court has continued to strengthen it. What's interesting to me, learning the history from you, is how from the very beginning, the idea of police accountability was deeply tied up with race. It just seems like these things are married together. Yes, exactly. The history is all, it can be traced back to racist acts and racism. And you can't divorce that history from how it came to be, how Congress tried to create a path so that officers and other government workers can be sued, and how the courts stepped in and made it so that it's really, really difficult to be able to do that very thing that Congress said should be a right of every citizen. After qualified immunity was created by the Supreme Court, it started to be used as a defense in state courts, too. The doctrine doesn't mean police officers can't be sued. They just have a decent legal defense once they get in front of a judge. There's one more twist, though. In the 1980s, a Supreme Court ruling stated police should only be convicted if their behavior violates a clearly established precedent. So, unless a similar case found that a certain behavior was wrong, it's almost impossible to get a conviction. That creates a catch-22. No one's getting convicted because no one has been convicted before. And it's led to some officers getting away with pretty egregious misconduct. I think something that people did not understand was that qualified immunity can and is granted even when there's been a constitutional violation. The courts can grant qualified immunity to an officer before they even take up whether or not there was a constitutional violation. There's a pretty high profile case that people often point to that illustrates this. In Fresno, California, there were officers that were accused of going in and during a search, uh, stealing rare coins and cash from some business owners. The business owners tried to sue and the court said that even though what they were being accused of was clear misconduct and was morally wrong, that still did not mean that they didn't have the right to qualified immunity. Even though they were stealing? Even though they were stealing, they were still granted qualified immunity. So these cases where there's evidence, clear evidence that there was uh, a constitutional or civil rights violation, and yet courts are granting qualified immunity anyway. For a long time, qualified immunity drew the attention of criminal justice reform advocates and pretty much no one else. But that changed after George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in 2020. For a moment, lawmakers around the country started taking a closer look at how they could limit the way this doctrine was used. More than two dozen states after Floyd introduced bills to either end or limit the use of qualified immunity in their state courts. So it was a pretty significant number. It was a, you know, a wave of them. Most of them, you know, were not successful. There were seven bills that ultimately passed. Two of them actually strengthened qualified immunity for officers in the state. But only one state, um, out of all those states that 
put forth the effort. Only one state, Colorado, actually passed a law that bans qualified immunity as a defense for individual officers. So you can sue individual officers and they cannot claim that as a defense. So two dozen states looked to do something like this. Only one ended up passing it. Right. You know, there were four other states in addition to Colorado that passed qualified immunity bills that tried to deal with the doctrine. But in those other states, in New Mexico, you can't sue individual officers, but you can sue their employers. So there is a legal path for people to get financial restitution if an officer violates their constitutional rights and the uh, the city, the county that employs that officer can't say, well, we're going to declare qualified immunity as a defense. Uh, that's been taken from them in New Mexico. But you can't go after the individual officers like you can in Colorado. And then with the other states that passed something on qualified immunity, they limited the use that, of it, uh, but did not straight up ban it. So how do they do that? Yeah. So when, for instance, in some of these states, there's language that says something like, the officer did not intend to violate somebody's constitutional rights, they still would be able to get qualified immunity. That seems so squirrely because, like, who's to know what someone intended? And anyone can raise their hand and say, I didn't intend to do that, but they're not the victim. Right. Yeah, that's the problem that critics have of of those bills that inserted language like that. It's really difficult to get inside the mind of an officer um, the idea and what they were going for was that let's make sure that this defense cannot be used by rogue officers that are intentionally going after people and intentionally violating their civil rights, doing it in a willful way. But at the end of the day, with language like that, the legal scholars who understand how these laws can be applied and argued in court, they have told me that it's going to be very difficult to be able to make use of that law because the burden is then placed on the plaintiff to have to prove what was going on inside the mind of the officer at the time. And it's pretty rare that, you know, an officer would maybe blurt out, you know, I plan to violate your constitutional rights or <laughs> I plan to do this. It's just not how it works. It's not how it works. And so those laws, it, it remains to be seen how much help it's going to provide for plaintiffs who have legitimate cases that they're trying to bring against police officers. When we come back, two states say they've gotten rid of qualified immunity. But have they? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Kimberly Kindy says two states, Colorado and New Mexico, show how even when lawmakers seem to agree on ending qualified immunity, passing a law about it can still be a challenge. In New Mexico, a bill passed that was widely reported to have ended qualified immunity. But there was a catch. 
while this new legislation meant police departments could be sued for a civil rights violation, individual officers could not. In New Mexico, they created a commission that studied, you know, what the bill should look like. And at the end of it, they came up with draft language that was submitted to the legislature that absolutely called for an end to qualified immunity for officers, as well as their employer. No ifs, ands, or buts. No, it was clearly in there. And when it came to its first hearing, it had been eliminated. And it was interesting because the people who showed up to testify for it, hoping that it would pass, still did not understand or know that it had been modified. In fact, some of the proponents that worked on it, the day that it passed, even put out press releases saying that it would end qualified immunity for officers. And it happened because there was such huge pushback from the police unions and officers. They wrote letters to the commission. They wrote letters to lawmakers. They showed up in lawmakers' offices. They took out full-page ads. Yeah, what were the arguments they were making? Well, the arguments they were making were that if this passes, um, it was going to cost them financially. They would lose their 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 homes, their families would be displaced. Uh, they said that people would leave the profession in droves. They said that they would not be able to recruit anybody. And in the end, you know, I, I interviewed the Speaker of the House and other people who worked on the bill, and they just said that it was just political expediency. They, it was very clear that the police were strongly opposed to having them, you know, be named in a lawsuit and that the bill that they could get passed was one where the employer of the officers uh, could be held to account. And their thinking was that, you know, you pass the bill that you can. You pass the law that will provide some path and um, some means for victims of police violence to bring a civil lawsuit. And... Maybe at a later day, you try to add the officers in. But uh, since they saw that they could actually pass the bill if they took that out, they decided to press forward. I wonder in some ways if that is a good outcome, because by shielding individual officers but creating a way for the leaders of police forces to be held accountable in some way, it incentivizes those leaders to better train the people who work under them, for instance. That is definitely argument. And even in Colorado, where they passed a bill that allows you to sue the individual officers, those lawsuits um, also allow for going after the employer. And in all of these civil lawsuits, they may name an individual officer, but they always name the employer too, because frankly, that's who pays. They have the pockets. They have the money. And so uh, a UCLA researcher looked at this um, several years ago, and in 99.98% of uh, civil lawsuits uh, against officers that where there's actually a, uh, a resolution, a settlement, a jury award, the municipalities pay almost every time. So hmm. the idea of creating a path so the individual officer could be named is really more of as one 
legal scholar put it, you know, making sure that the officers have, quote, some skin in the game. It's not going to be an exorbitant amount of money that they would be held liable for. They maybe wouldn't even pay anything. But for victims of police violence, many of them want to be able to name the officer that hurt them, the officer that maimed them, the officer that took their loved one's life, so that they're being held to account, if, if not monetarily, but at least by name. And that's kind of where the debate breaks down uh, between who should be held liable. If you're going to get rid of qualified immunity or limits its application, at the end of the day, who should be held accountable and what does that produce? I mean, one source told you that when you pass a law like New Mexico's, it's taxpayer accountability, not law enforcement officer accountability. And I thought that was such a good way to put it because then you realize like, oh, hold it. This is accountability that I'm going to pay for as a taxpayer. Right. At the There's no getting around that. If, if, if it's uh, the employer that's going to pay, it's going to be the taxpayer every time that's footing the bill. And I think that's why there's like this persistent argument. I know you looked at Colorado, too, and you've said it's really the one state where some form of qualified immunity reform has really happened for individual officers. So I'm wondering what you found when you looked at Colorado. Why do you think this was the state that was able to get rid of qualified immunity to some degree for police officers? Mm. Well, Colorado is really unique, and it was about the moment. You had a, um, a lawmaker who had already been working on a bill that got shelved. So there's legislation ready to go. Right. There was legislation that was in the works that they could pull off a shelf. And they definitely had momentum. It was one of the state houses where people were showing up in large numbers with signs saying in qualified immunity. There were conversations that were taking place on the Hill. Their legislative session was coming close to an end. I think they had 20 days to pull that bill off the shelf, amend it, and get it through. What about the police? Because I know that in New Mexico, the police were so vocal about, yeah. you know, their opposition. They were very vocal about their opposition. But not not only did you have Democrats in control of the House and the Senate and, and the will uh, of, of all the Democrats, they unanimously said they supported this and wanted to do it uh, right, right out of the chute. And then you had two Republican lawmakers with very close ties to law enforcement. One who was actually a former law enforcement officer who supported the bill and told law enforcement, this is going to happen. So get in the room and negotiate the terms, but you're not going to be able to kill the bill. That is a completely different dynamic than what was happening in other state houses. If their session wasn't 20 days away from the day that they pulled the bill off the shelf, if there had been weeks and weeks and months and months for the uh, police to lobby, it's very unclear whether or not it would have passed. But there was this short timeline synergy and this air of inevitability. This was going to pass. So everybody came to the table. And what the negotiations really focused on was not 
uh, whether or not they were going to kill the bill. It's really about how much financially they were going to have officers have to pay if they had a judgment against them. It started out with a really highball figure of, you know, $100,000 um, and ended up getting lowered to $25,000. And so for all the people who were involved in negotiations, they said that that was really the focus of the negotiations. Uh, what is our liability going to look like? How big is it going to be? So the, the the conversation was just completely different. Yeah. I mean, looking at what ended up coming out of Colorado's session, this liability of just $25,000 for police officers who are successfully sued. I, I look at it and I wonder, like, is that a success? And and who considers it one? Because $25,000, it's less than some people pay for a year of college. It's It's really small. It's a fraction of what was originally in there. Well, it's still a significant chunk of change for somebody in law enforcement, particularly in some of these, you know, smaller departments, they're not making huge, you know, salaries. And I, I think that the idea long-term is that if they ever got to a point where officers were, were actually, you know, having to pay that, they would need to get insurance, just like the cities have insurance to pay off claims, right? Most municipalities have insurance that uh, pays off settlements when there is a civil rights case that's brought against them, or they decide to settle it before they go to court. So what this model would would um, ultimately look like if it prevailed in other states and if to, and officers were really held liable for the money damages, they would need to get insurance. And the idea about insurance is that, you know, if you were an officer who violated someone's constitutional rights, your insurance would go up. Hmm. And so the idea is that eventually you would kind of get priced out of your job. If you're a rogue cop who keeps getting in trouble and your insurance rates keep going up pretty soon, you're not going to be able to be an officer. And so it, one school of thought is that, that it would sort of take care of that. In the years since it was passed, Colorado's ban on qualified immunity, it hasn't had the earth-shaking impact police thought it might. Officers aren't leaving the force in droves. Recruitment numbers seem to be just fine. And there's been no deluge of misconduct lawsuits. Even so, Colorado's law hasn't inspired all that much change in other states or on the federal level. Which means, in the end, qualified immunity hasn't really been eliminated at all. It's a federal doctrine, and so it has to be handled at the federal level. And unless that happens, unless the Supreme Court, you know, does something to um, to change uh, qualified immunity, or unless Congress does something to eradicate it or limit it, people who decide to bring their cases to federal court, you're going to be facing the same obstacles that the people before them have. And the truth is that there isn't any belief that the Supreme Court's going to do that. Just this week, the Supreme Court had two cases in front of it where the lower courts decided that the officers did not have a right to qualified immunity, and the Supreme Court overturned those lower courts' decisions and gave the officers qualified immunity. So it's pretty clear that that's not going to be the path for change. 
you know, the question that a lot of people have, both at the state houses where things have slowed down and in Congress is, is it going to take another George Floyd incident to get the momentum going again, to have this issue come up and be a legitimate um, point of debate where something could actually happen in Congress and in more state houses. Yeah, that's the fear. Um, and, you know, it's like the the grumble of victims and, and their families is, why does it take that? Kimberly Kendi, I'm so grateful for you joining. Thank you for having me. Kimberly Kindy is a national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Carmel Delshad, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Daniel Hewitt. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Stay tuned to this feed tomorrow. Lizzie O'Leary is going to be here with What Next TBD. That is our Friday show. You will not want to miss it. And I'll catch you back here next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.